Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, friends. Thanks for listening. This is the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. Just to let you know, before we kick off this week's episode, right now, you can book your place at a very special event, the 15th of April, Desperately Seeking Paul, live in London at the Water Rats. Two very special guests. We're going to be recording a double episode of the podcast, all right? Two very special guests, like I say. Both of them, funny enough, have got the surname Anderson. First of all, Peter Anderson. Yes, the man who took photos of the Style Council before we even knew they were the Style Council, for goodness sake. He went off to France with Mr. Weller and Mick Talbot. He photographed the jam and so many other people as well. We're going to chat to him about photography, his life, his connections with Mr. Weller. And then another Anderson, Paul Smiler Anderson. He'll talk about his friendship with Mr. Weller in recent years, but also his absolute love of the jam and how it introduced him to a lifelong passion for all things mod. This is going to be really special. We'll see you Saturday, 15th of April at the Water Rats in London. Get your tickets now on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Hello and welcome to episode 137 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode, I am joined by producer, sound engineer, and musician, Jamie Johnson. This fella has worked on numerous number one albums for artists, including Paul Weller, Razorlight, David Gilmore. He has plenty of connections with the amazing legend that is Robert Wyatt as well. So we'll talk about that. He recorded a mixed Mr. Weller's Mercury shortlisted album, Wake Up the Nation, in 2010, and also contributed to the likes of Heavy Soul, Heliocentric, 22 Dreams, Sonic Kicks, and A Kind Revolution. We're going to dig into so many of these stories of life in the studio. Albums like Robert Wire's 1997 classic, Sleep, an album that featured Paul Weller on a number of tracks. Another corker of a guest. Let's get into it. Jamie Johnson, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. It was a pleasure. 
looking forward to digging in some of your memories because your time with the Weller crew was such a key part of my discovery of Weller and those albums from Heavy Soul and Helios. Oh, okay. Was that all. when you got into him then? Love all. I mean, I loved all the solo stuff. So right at the beginning of the solo years, really, I was there. But those early solo albums were were terrific. So how old would you have been then? Uh, so I would have been how old am I? So I was born seventy five. So I would have been ninety one, ninety two. What would I have been like sixteen, seventeen, something like that? So coming into Heavy Soul, you know, I had a bit of money in my pocket. I could go to those gigs and stuff. Right. You know. Yeah. 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 Wonderful times, man. Yeah, I was a little bit older than you. I was a student then like 21 22 and similarly for me those solo albums for me that was what really turned me on to him his first solo album i think is probably still my favorite yeah um, i listen to that so often it's yeah funny. me too it's the one i listen to more than any any others yeah was this music this engineering this production side of things something you were doing at school college that side of thing no 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 i wasn't at all no, I was into politics. I did, uh, yeah, like a politics degree with sociology. But I was in bands. I, I was a musician. I was in a band with Charles. So me ah, and Charles, with Charles Riggs. So yeah. When did I first meet Charles? 89, 90, maybe. So we'd been in bands and he left to work in a studio. He left the band, which we were all really annoyed about, <laughs> to get a job in a studio. And then eventually... I went to help out in the same place and never left. No, I didn't. I hadn't planned to do it at all. No. So this was Gallery Studio in Chertsey. I love this. I love this. So this is completely stumbled into it. And so what skills did you have to bring to the studio then? I could, well, make tea. <laughs> well, I spent a long time there not doing any engineering. You just make the tea. I mean, Charles was fiercely into it. You know, he loved it. And in our band, he wanted to, he was, he had the equipment, you know, and the four track and the eight track. So he was really, it was his dream to do it. And we always used to think, that's so bloody boring. What? Do you want to be an engineer? You want to be the musicians, you know? And so really it was just, I was only helping out. I spent three years just doing the driving, make tea, you make the food. We had a lot of bands in and out. So there were often two bands in at the same time. We had a mix room at the back and a tracking room as well. So you'd, there'd be a band in the back doing the mixing. There'd be another band in with tracking. So it was really busy. There were quite a few engineers there. I was just having fun driving bands around and, you know, hanging out in studios. It was good fun, but not in, still then. I didn't really want to do engineering. I was applying for other jobs and kind of, this is too much fun to leave to go and do that. I love that. That's brilliant. And so, so I had only recently started tape-hopping and assisting in the studio when Paul first came to the studio. It was a place called Gallery in Chertsey, owned by Phil of Manzanera. Um, you know the guitarist with Roxy Music? Oh, yeah. It was his kind of home studio. So it was kind of commercial, but not really. So who was who was recording there? What kind of band? Would any of the bands and artists be people that we know? Uh, Dire Straits did a lot of their brothers in arms kind of rehearsals there in the early 80s. Avalon was recorded there in the early 80s. Loads. Yeah, yeah, loads. Oh, cool. Okay. You mentioned Charles Reese, so Paul Weller's engineer at Black Barn Studios right now. Charles was working there as well, was he? That's Charles weird. started working there in about 90, I don't know, he'll tell you on his turn, yeah, when he does it. <laughs> Charles started working there maybe 92, 93, maybe. I might be wrong about that, maybe a bit earlier. Well, absolutely. And we'd all love that, right? Um, so let's kick off with the connections to Mr. Weller. And there are so many of them that link in with you, him, Robert Wyatt as well. And I'd love to talk about Robert. He's obviously clearly a massive, massive talent. So in terms of you and that studio, what came first? Was it Paul or was it Robert? Paul came first, I think. I mean, I might be wrong, but I think Paul came to gallery first to try it out. I remember him saying, or someone in the crew saying, they used to love the manor 
which was a studio in Oxfordshire, I think. Loads of people had talked about the manor being a great place to record. And he used to he used to go there and loved it. And he said this this place, the gallery, kind of reminded him of that. So he came, it was just demos. I think he was doing, it must have been, I don't know how long after Sandy Road. It must have been before, well, it must have been 96, right? Because Heavy Soul was 97. So he was doing demos. He came in uh, only maybe for two days, two or three days. He was just trying the studio out. And I was assisting another guy called Ash Howes, who's another engineer. He used to work at Gallery a lot. And then maybe a few months after that was when we started recording Sleep. Robert and Alfie came down. And Robert, obviously, we told him that Paul had been in. And I think he'd always been a little bit of a fan. And so he wrote a little uh, note saying, so when Paul comes back in next time, can you give him this note? I want to ask him to come and play on the stuff. So that's what happened. So then Paul Paul came. I think we had a break in recording Sleep. And Paul came back in to start recording stuff for, for what became Heavy Soul. And then Robert came back quite soon after. I think they might almost have been quite back-to-back after doing a session for doing Heavy Soul. We started up doing Sleep again, and Paul came in and actually did loads, actually, on that album. Yeah, so there was like guitar and bits bits arranged by Brian Eno as well, which is incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure Brian and Paul were in the studio at the same time. Oh, that'd have been that would have been harder. That would have been fun to watch. <laughs> uh, but then Paul singing and playing on tracks, guitar did loads. I think yeah. I think the original idea was just there was maybe one song that he he thought he would help with, and then they ended up he ended up playing him all the demos for everything, and he ended up doing a certain. I'm sure on three songs he did stuff. But a lot of stuff, you know, it, it, you know, as the mixes were going down, he was there as we were putting some of the mixes down and, you know, all the production side. I'm not sure that was the original intention, but it was. It all went so well. He just stuck around. And, all, and there's also a version of The Whole Point of No Return, the Snarl Council, on that album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, an amazing version. I mean, completely different, isn't it? It's like... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, it's incredible. Yeah, you wouldn't even know. It's Me and Charles are singing on that. We're part <laughs> of the, uh, the ooze in the background. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Now, the thing is, at that time, it's a really kind of established crew from that first solo album, um, Stanley Rowe Wildwood, all that stuff. Yeah, you've got, yeah. You know, you've got Brendan Lynch producing, you've got Martin Max Hayes engineering yeah. and stuff. So, but then there comes this crossover where Charles is doing more and, and then you're involved and stuff. So did you work together, all of you? Brendan wasn't there at all. The first time Paul came to the studio just to try the studio out, it was this, it was the gallery kind of chief engineer, Ash who was engineering and I was assisting him. And then when Paul came back to actually do that, to start actually recording, he obviously liked the studio, came back. Ash was busy doing some of the, it was a South American band. He was mixing in the back room with Charles and Phil said I should do it. And I hadn't long been like actually engineering. I mean, I'd done a lot, not with someone paying to use the studio. <laughs> so, but lots of assisting and, and Ash was amazing. So I learned so much from him. So I'd only been doing it maybe as the guy in the chair, you know, for six months a year, really quite green, well, extremely green. So I was engineering and I can't remember if Charles was assist. I'm sure Charles had to, had to assist in the back room with with Ash, but maybe he was doing both. I mean, no pressure. This is off the back of like a, a, a no million, million selling record, Sally Road, right? He, We're on to the next one. <laughs> he came into the, 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 it was the second stint on like day two or three. 
And I'm really nervous anyway. And he walks in with, the, with these fucking gold discs to hand out to everyone. There was one for Max and there's one for Sony. And he's handing them all out. It's like, oh, man. Yeah, that was hilarious. Max wasn't <laughs> there, though. So Max had to go on paternity leave. His girlfriend, or, or you know, his wife had just was about to give birth or just had. So I think if that hadn't happened, Max would have been engineering, right? I wouldn't have done it. I think Max would have been there and I'd probably have assisted Max, but Max wasn't around. When you say engineering, take us through the role. What exactly are you doing? Because it's more than yeah. just sticking the leads in the in the desk, right? Yeah, although there is a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> there wasn't a producer there, so Brendan wasn't there. Paul was kind of in charge. Well, yeah, you're plugging everything in, but you've got an assistant as well that helps with some of that. We were choosing which mics you want to use on what and where you want to put the mics. So there's a lot, as you're setting up, you're toing and froing between the live room and the, and the control room and you're plugging stuff in, going back in, turning up the fader. Does that work? Does that work? Sending that to the tape machine, organizing your tape, organizing what tape you're going to put, which take on. And then when everything's, uh, and headphones, all that kind of stuff, all the technical stuff is mainly just, just you and the assistant you've got. And you, obviously there's a lot of, this doesn't work, that cable shit, let's let's try something. <laughs> you change a cable to this, there's loads and loads of that when you're setting up. And then when you're when and and then once you're going and you're trying to record takes of songs, you're you press play and you press record and go back to the beginning, do it again and, and things are happening so you go out and adjust the microphone or you change. So you you're kind of in charge of getting the sound that they're making out there onto the tape. Now as you say that there were lots of references of tape. So much as so much yeah. has changed, even yeah. with your time with working with Paul on those yeah. albums. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. From, from moving from tape to digital and to you know things like Pro Tools and whatever. Yeah, um, well, during Twenty Two Dreams, that was a crossover period. But I'm sure we'll get onto that. But so the back in the day is literally reels of tape for yeah. heavy for an album like Heavy Soul. Yeah? yeah, digital was there, but it wasn't studio standard stuff at all big studios maybe had it but um yeah we were talking kind of um hushed tones about oh, imagine when when we'll be able to do that and it will be on a screen and it's so digital was there yeah but it wasn't standard tape machines were standard and gallery had a really good one as well it was like a, a, an ampex it was called amongst tape geeks it was like oh that that's a brilliant tape you know machine that still reels of tape loading it up cleaning the tape machine cleaning the tape heads all that stuff and paul liked to play live a lot then so you were yeah. kind of doing stuff in yeah. one two three takes yeah you're really going for the drums and the bass and then maybe you overdub guitars but actually we weren't separating stuff that much so actually i think that first stint there for heavy soul it was he was trying to get guitars as well in one take because they're all in the same room we didn't have a booth where maybe you put guitar amps so that wouldn't come through on the drums. Everything had a bit of spill to it. So it was about trying to contain that. And like I said, I was quite green anyway. <laughs> so I, I hadn't done a lot of that, trying to get it all in. Everyone's in the room together, which is like a Motowny thing as well, isn't it? I guess that goes, but you know. That also Abbey Road, I think. Like that, yeah. And Abbey Road, yeah. yeah. And you really are trying to get everything. Whereas all my experience up to then had been, you're getting the drums and the bass and the guitar amp's just on a on an amp in another room, but you don't really care about that too much because you're gonna you're gonna overdub that. Whereas Paul's singing and playing, so we have screens so that his singing doesn't come on the drum mics too much. But it's all there on Mermaids on that album. You can really really hear that. That really is everything that was there. Maybe they overdubbed some other bits, tambourines maybe and stuff. 
But that is that there's not a lot of overdubs on that, I don't think. There's also a B-side around that time as well, which you engineered, which was um, that live band. So Matt Dayton on guitar, Matt's been oh, on I the podcast. Um, this is that. Everything Has a Price to Pay, the 97 yeah, version. Yeah, yeah. That was brilliant. That was just him and Matt. I mean, it's only the two of them. They were sat opposite. I knew it was for, you mentioned this film. What was the film? Oh, I don't know. The Face? Is it called The Face? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was for a soundtrack. It was for a soundtrack for The okay. Face with Robert Carlyle. Oh, and yeah, yeah. About the time him, those two started hanging out, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so he was talking about how long it had to be to fit this intro, and he'd seen the intro and all that. And it was just him and Matt. They sat opposite each other. We had, like, a, a kind of sound screen thing kind of between them, but not really you couldn't you couldn't go all the way up to the roof you know so they could see each other and they just did a few takes i think they might have dropped in one bit like around the solo bit like so they're listening saying in time and then you drop in a bit but it's only a little there's only a couple of notes or something like that it's pretty much just them sat opposite each other playing it and the way he synced it to time was unbelievable it was like you know i kept saying should we check that one against time because it's not and he went no i think it's kind of about right and then when it was after is it synced up with the thing it finishes at like the perfect point in the scene and I, we overdub bits on it there's like a couple of chimey bells he's timed it perfectly to fit in that gap it's brilliant yeah, no, I love that version of that song. I love it. And whilst Heavy Soul didn't sell in the numbers that Stanley Road did, it was still a big success. And he toured the heck out of that album as well. Um, and pretty soon afterwards, we're on to the next project, Heliocentric, recorded at lots of different studios, I gather, including Chris Difford, who's been on the podcast, and his studio down in Rye at the time. And you're involved again at one of those studios, yeah? Yeah, he phoned me up and sent me some dem- a demo tape. And said, we're going to go down and do some new demos to start this new album. Yeah, that was in Jacobs in Farnham. So it's still pretty near. That's not far away from Chertsey. It was a larger place than Gallery. There was much more space in the live room. There was, you could live above the studio. That was a wilder album because you couldn't stay at Gallery. So everyone was coming in each day. Whereas that was everyone's living. (laughs) Everyone lives there all the time. (laughs) So uh, it's like a, yeah, that was a wilder experience doing that what are the band lights to live with i mean were they tidy are they is paul vacuuming around and giving it dusting the shutters and all that or he's quite well you you know what he looks like he's very smart yeah quite tidy i think i, I don't think go in his bedroom much but i think he kept a tidy bedroom <laughs> it was different then though for that album so that heavy soul was marco playing bass and steve white drums okay so steve's still playing but marco wasn't playing with him by then it was damon wasn't it he, he, he was starting to play with damon and steve Craddock then promotion yeah. color scene yeah and they liked to laugh and the party as well so there were all of us yeah we were all staying there and charles came along Paul said you can bring Charles as well. So there was like the Jacobs studio assistant and Charles and me. And we also did sessions with Ibrahim Aziz during the same stint. Yeah, yeah. Aziz was he came yeah. down and played guitar on the cut on some demos for Paul. And Brendan was around as well at that time. No, he wasn't coming no? in the studio. No, I remember we, were, we had to go to his flat or something to drop some tapes off maybe to him. And he was adding stuff. I guess he did it at home or maybe they went into another studio somewhere else afterwards and he overdubbed it but he had a, I remember him having a setup or something at home and he no but he wasn't in the studio there wasn't really a producer in that sense doing the day to day it was just it was it was me Paul and the band and Charles is there and yeah he was kind of doing it himself I guess 
cool. Mm. And we also, on that album, we have strings from Robert Kirby. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. You know, Nick Drake's yeah. arranger, famously. But Yeah, we didn't do any strings there. I think they recorded that in another place, maybe Angel Studios or somewhere. But he came in for the day. He was quite a character as well. He liked to party as well. <laughs> he had a really good. He had a really good day when he. So he came in and he heard all the songs and just to hang out, I think, and enjoy it. And then he, uh, yeah, they must have recorded all those string arrangements afterwards. Paul famously works his team hard. You know, everybody's talked about that from the hours they used to put in from the jam days to the style councils. So yeah, it was serious in terms of the work. But you all like to party and, and have a good time afterwards, did you? Yeah, people do say that, but I think that gives a false impression, really, like some. Now he's a strict taskmaster or something. I think it's just, it's incredible energy and focus for long periods of time. I don't know if you've ever hung, hung out with him in studios or anything, no? No, no, not yet, not yet. Soon, soon, if you keep asking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He never really, I don't remember him ever like chilling out on the couch or almost in every studio you go to, there's a big couch behind the desk sat there. We'd never, never, ever catch Paul sitting on the couch. He was, he'd be on a stool kind of leant forward, foot tapping. There's like this thing going all the time. And I think it's infectious and everyone else is like, well, if he's kind of on the, it's a, it's a being on the edge kind of thing, I think. And he's searching for something and it's, it got to be here in the music as well. And it's like, it's not anger, is it? Or it's just a, it's just an energy that's kind of pushing against something that creates a tension or something like that. And it seems like that's always there when he's in the studio. And I think people feed off of it. And well, if he's doing it, we have to, you have to up it, right? You have to up your game and, and stay with it a bit. So yeah, long, long hours, but I don't remember. <sighs> Yeah, and you do get times when it's like, I'm knackered, and you just can't hear anything, whatever, and it's two in the morning. But they're all still going for it, right? And they're buzzing and trying to capture something. And it, who's going to want to go, oh, sorry, guys, I'm I'm going to go now. You carry on without me. It's like, you can't really well, do Because as the engineer, you've got to capture all that sound, right? So, you have to, yeah, but you, <laughs> could, like, you could have said to someone else, you, can you take over and do an hour? I've got to go to bed. But you wouldn't be able to go to sleep anyway after the kind of days we're doing anyway. So it's like you're either in it or you're not in it, really. You're in for the for the ride of it. And as a fan, you must be, I mean, as somebody who kind of loved, like you say, that first solo album, Paul's sound and what he brings to music and stuff. When he's coming in with lyrics for songs like Frightened, there must yeah. be a bit of you just like, oh my God, this is like, and then you're there watching it come to life and this, the building up of the song for the recording and stuff. That's a magical experience, isn't it? It is, yeah. More afterwards, I think, more afterwards in hindsight, you know, you're pretty busy all the time. It's not like you, maybe more if you're the producer and you're sat there with your pad and someone else is doing all the technical stuff and you can sit back and just let the music kind of go over and think about the lyrics and all that it's more in hindsight afterwards when you're listening back to stuff I mean particularly with lyrics for me I am into lyrics but it's not it's not you know they could in effect sing anything it doesn't quite change the things I have to think about (laughs) (laughs) on the desk apart from when you're comping it together you know there's a a vowel or a syllable. So, yeah, I don't know if you get enough time really to sit back and relax and enjoy the lyrics, particularly. My favourite period in a studio is when you're early doors in the recording. So you've you've kind of set up and all the mics are going and they're going for takes and they're trying to get live takes. Because there is a sense then when you're just listening, it's like a concert, but there's like they're right there 
and the speakers are right there and it's really loud, you can enjoy it more then. And then once you start getting into tracking and you're analysing more and you're doing overdubs of this, that and the other, there's a lot of technical stuff you're trying to stay on top of and the computer or the tape. Artistically, I think you appreciate it more afterwards, unless you're the producer and that's your job at the time. But if you're engineering, there's quite a lot else you have to, you have to keep on top of as well. Now, the next few albums, uh, so Illumination, As Is Now, Studio 150, Charles, who we've mentioned, Charles Reese, and Stan Kyber of Engineering. So you're stepping away from the Weller team, but you're still busy with other artists. Robert Wyatt, we mentioned, so you co-produced his album yeah. at the time, Cuckoo Land. Mercury nominated, folks. Mercury nominated, folks. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the Mercury Music Prize, don't they say... Uh... Then they say everyone's like a winner. Everyone wins a Mercury Prize. There's just one above all else. So in a sense, we did win a Mercury Prize. He, he, he gets a statue. Yeah, yeah, you're, the statue, you're, no, you're right. Yeah. So, you're part so of the Mercury so list. Yeah, you're right. actually win. Just someone else on the night was prime, you know, was the prime minister. I think that, I think there's prize money associated with the number one. Oh, song. yeah. That's so we didn't, well, right? yeah. no, we didn't get that. Yeah. We didn't get that. <laughs> but you get the call back from Paul for 22 Dreams. So this is him down at Black Barn Studio, his own um, studio. Yeah, so the, he was thinking about buying Black Barn while we were towards the end of heliocentric it might even have been charles used to work at black barn before we worked to gallery so to walk that would have been late 80s early 90s he used to go and help out and assist and tape up there so he might have even mentioned paul must have known it was there i don't know but it was up for sale and they were buying it and charles lived already lived very nearby to black barn and he knew it so he's perfect fit for charles and it it took quite a while to get the studio up and running it was kind of like a labor of love i'm not sure paul ever had the intention when he bought it of this is going to be the place i do all my recording i don't know it would needed a lot of work and charles blimey he put in so much work to get that up and going so i think by 22 dreams maybe before that it was in shape you know to actually record i was working with a band who was i working with boy least likely to record and we were working in a studio on labrook grove and i went to sainsbury's to get something to eat and that and bumped into paul in the vegetable aisle <laughs> literally literally i looked up to the chapter on my left and it was paul and he yeah he said they, they were working they were doing uh they'd started recording he mentioned simon dine who i kind of i knew the name anyway someone used to manage a studio alice she knew simon dine from years ago so i knew the name and he had and he mentioned pro tools he said we've got this pro we're setting up with pro tools have you been doing a lot of stuff with pro tools i had i've been using it for years and years and i think it was probably still quite new in there at black barn yeah he said why don't you come down and help out so I went down to help out and they were, I think most of it was already recorded. And this is Paul, I think approaching 50 at that time, if I remember rightly. Um, this is him saying actually a really self-indulgent double album, but that really people loved. And it seemed to be a kind of um, a, yet another kind of iteration of him. And But suddenly he's working in a different way. He's not necessarily, um, everything's not necessarily fully fleshed out when he goes into the studio. No, um, no. He's trying different well, techniques and different ways of working. During right? that stage, though, I hadn't been there during that during the recording stage so when I first heard it I mean it wasn't pretty much done there, there were still lots of overdubs and they and I think they'd started maybe with some of the mixing hearing it like had not gone through the process of bit by bit as you build it up yeah I thought wow that this really is completely different to what we'd been doing before it's like a collaging when, when you work like that in a way and I guess Simon was having ideas that he was bringing in Paul would do something to those 
take that away, do something with that, come back, add something with that. So it's like it's forming through the process, isn't it, of the back and forward. I love doing stuff like that. It hasn't got that thing, you know, I was saying about a band in front of you playing and the song is like, is there immediately. You hear what the song is immediately. This is, it kind of grows out of something, an idea. It's like, well, that sounds good, but is that a, you know, the song isn't there yet. That starts to form around the skeleton as the structure of live drums or loops or stuff. So by was hearing that for the first time I heard it was kind of at the end of that process and they were preparing to mix it, I suppose. And also this idea of like him just opening up the doors of Black Barn. So you hear the countryside, you hear the cockerel. Oh, blimey. I used to feel so sweet bad that, right? the neighbours. We used to listen to that so loud at like three in the morning and the doors are wide open. You'd go outside for a fag or something and you'd think, this, is so, this must be travelling for miles. <laughs> <laughs> it's just countryside. There's nothing to stop it. It must be going for miles. It's amazing. Everybody's getting a preview of the new Weller album, so they're probably not complaining. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're probably not. <laughs> They probably don't mind. I think there was quite a bit of tension at the time with the Pro Tools, with working differently. I mean, it was always at two or three in the morning, so everyone's always a bit tired and slightly drunk, maybe. But, um, yeah, there was quite a lot. (laughs) Is that people not knowing how to use it? No disrespect. Or how to work with it. Yeah, I don't know. I guess you're so used to working with things like tape. there's a sense in which it's really quicker and easier to edit something on the screen rather than, or let's bounce, let's play it through and do the edits by doing it on a fader. But uh, sometimes, yeah, I don't, I don't really know how to explain it without getting too boringly technical, but in other ways it slows you down and it makes the creative process a bit duller. Mm-hmm. But it makes it much, I mean, in the end, Part of the reason I don't do it anymore is is because I don't want to sit in front of a computer all day. But it does become a bit like like everyone's looking at this box in the corner of the room because it's all happening there on this screen on a rather than what you used to do, which is it's not happening there. It's like it's in the room and it's and I don't know. It does weird things to the dynamics of a studio. There were tense moments of can we make that drum loop work with that thing? And then you're sitting there going tick 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 while everyone else is just like, what's happening? What's going on? It's like I'm trying to do this thing you want me to do. Yeah. In the old days, some music would have been playing and they would have been hearing the thing that they've asked you to do. They'd have been here, okay, yeah, yeah, maybe move that to da, 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 da. But they're not, you're just typing. They're <laughs> <laughs> like, what's happening? And so, and it gets a bit, yeah, you can have a bit of tension. But you, you could tell he'd got much more used to that process and the way it works by the next couple of albums. And Well, yeah, I'm really pushing the envelope to so wake up the nation You're and you're back engineering um, on, on that as well. And actually playing bass, we'll yeah. come back to you as a musician in a sec too, but, and then Sonic Kicks, this trilogy of albums. Kicks, like, yeah. He's working with Simon Dine and he's pushing the envelope on the sound. And yeah. I mean, so different. Always unbelievable for that, isn't he? To have a sound and everything that you had on the jam and then you really change it and it's like the style council, but it's still Paul. And then he changes it again and it's to keep changing all that time and yet still sound like Paul and his spirit is there in all of it. That's, um, it's kind of unbelievable, isn't it? I can't think of any other comparable artist, really. Certainly not English artists that have done that. And that desire to want to try and find new things in the music is... Yeah, because it not- could easily not work, right? It could easily... Remember all the stick... Well, I don't know if you, you would remember, but you got so much 
stick for like at the end of the style counts and he did this album and everyone was like, what do you think he is? What is this? And his solo career could have easily not been good, right? He could have, how many artists have done that, right? And it's just, yeah, it's all right. But it's like, he goes on to do Stanley Road. I mean, it's amazing, really. Mm. It's really brave to just knock something down and go, right, no, let's do a new thing to follow something like that. It's, it's incredible. So let's talk about the playing on Wake Up The Nation then. So this is um, Pieces of a Dream was the track. You played bass on it. I don't know if this was, like you say, if it was done as a live studio track or actually you knew uh, about the bass and then no, they, had, no. they added you on on Pro Tools and layered it up. It was only me and Charles there. There was no one to see. There was no one there to see it, Dan. Uh, <laughs> there was a kind of, there was a suggested, when we combined a few samples and some live bits, there was a kind of sound of a, something sounding like a bass doing the, uh, a thing. It wasn't quite there. So we thought we want to bring that out more. It, should, it was to play it on a bass. So I just played it on a bass and we stuck it in, but no one else was there. <laughs> Paul didn't ask me. Paul didn't say, listen, your bass playing's amazing, man. Can you... Because <laughs> it's you the same out, thing you, over and over again. Can you come out on the road with us? And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I have played bass a lot. I've played bass in different bands. I mean, I was a guitarist. I was a guitar player who wanted to be a rock star that ended up being in a studio. I mean, I'm going back to the early thing now, but when I was making the tea and driving bands around i just realized i love being in the studio it's just such a great environment i mean you're around musicians it's the equipment it's the feel of being in a studio i loved it a lot more than i liked playing live and being in a band and all that kind of thing so i thought actually this is after three or four years i finally realized if i want to be around music and do music this is where I should be doing it, not in the in a van or gigging or trying to write songs with irritating singers and blah, blah, blah. Because you, then you're there all the time and different bands are going to come in. And so I finally realized that. So I was a guitarist and then I kind of learned bass because you're working with other bass players and musicians and there's a bass sitting there in the studio. And we did our own stuff, Charles and I. We, we still had a band in the studio. So you end up playing bass on things for people. So yeah, we just pick it up. But Charles is like that as well. Charles plays a lot of drums on the uh, on Paul stuff as well. Now they record bits of it. Maybe you sample bits, or maybe you loop bits. But when you say you play bass, it wasn't like <laughs> a bass performance. It was just it would, to me, it was another piece of programming. You just there's a sound you want in there. Let's just do it on a bass guitar, da, 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 and then you put that. You add the. Isn't it great, though, that Paul was crediting you with that? I mean, I I suppose he has to, doesn't he? I I did physically, but but he has to. I did physically play it, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure that, but I'm sure some musicians wouldn't wouldn't give the credit where it's due. Paul always seems to have done that on every album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah, he's really generous like that. Well, you can tell from the fact that the people that work with him work with him either forever or for long, long periods at a time. There's, I mean, the loyalty there is goes the two ways, you know. Now, Sonic Kicks was performed live at the Roundhouse as well. Um, I don't know if you got to go to any of those gigs. No, but it was, it was no, incredible. They no. did the album from start to finish. Um, I didn't and, know that. No. Yeah, yeah. And people like firing off the effects or whatever else. It's oh, okay. It was, it was magical. It was really incredible. So again, taking himself out of that comfort zone of live performance at this time. And, yeah. Trying yeah. different things, you know. The next thing I wanted to talk about was A Kind Revolution. So this is 2017, which feels like, to me, this feels like a really recent album, but now we're talking about, what, six, seven years ago. And you're like, oh, blimey, God, where's that time gone? But yeah, you were back with good. Robert Wyatt at that time and you recorded his vocals and trumpet for the song She Moved With The Fair. So yes, you've always yeah. had this connection with Robert then. Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, I recorded all his albums from 90, from Sleep, that first one we did called Sleep in 96. Then everything he did from then on, I mean, he's, he, he says he's retired now. 
but I think people have been up to see him in Louth, as I did for Paul to record him on something. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did everything. We've done, we've done uh, albums at, at what became Gallery Mark II up in Queen's Park. So Phil, Phil owns a place there, a studio there. So um, we did all of uh, all of his other albums there. Yeah, there's always been that link there. And I'm sure him and Paul still still, still speak quite often, don't they? There was this lovely gig that they did where, um, oh, yeah. around about the same time, the concert for Corbin down in Brighton. The concert for Corbin, yeah. I, yeah, I saw clips from that. And I think they did, didn't they do, I saw a clip of them doing a, a September in the Rain. Yes. I think that was that gig, which we did, which they recorded a version of in gallery in that first stint in 96, 97. Yeah, I, yeah, I vividly remember that night. One thing I was going to ask you is, have you heard of this thing about the verb wieting? Oh, is that the jukebox thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, putting on a Robert song. Yeah. <laughs> so to Wyatt, so this is, is basically this is going into a pub and well, it's not it's not just playing Roberts. So it's going into a pub and playing unusual tracks in, yeah. on a pub jukebox. So and yeah. effectively, it was to annoy other pub goers, right? And it <laughs> and it was it was. I think there was one particular album of Roberts that it was that it was meant to be from. I can't remember which one. Was it Donderstan? Is that how you pronounce it? Maybe. Yeah. 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 Um. And and this became a thing. So you know, you're you're wieting, yeah. and you're just going in and putting something on that you think people are going to hate on a pub jukebox. Yeah, yeah, or at least kind of disturb them in a way and go, "What on earth is that?" <laughs> and I saw that Robert was quoted in the Guardian as saying, "Actually, he really likes it. He thought this was really a really funny idea, and he was actually quite honoured about the idea." <laughs> yeah, I think it's brilliant. Well, if you can do that, some a lot of music's just kind of. Well, yeah, whatever. It's just on in the background. If you could make someone stopping that, what tracks, the hell is what? that? Yeah, what are <laughs> yeah. they doing? What is that sound? Yeah, that's that's quite that's quite good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I thought that was brilliant. What are your memories yeah. of recording that song then for um, a kind revolution? You're obviously in the studio um, with Robert. Oh, well, well I went up to Louth to his house. I went to oh. Robert and Alfie's house with uh, with some equipment. He's got a room at the front of his house with a piano in and his uh, his instruments. And he wheels about into there. We recorded it all there in his front room. Yeah, and I brought it back. And what was the direction from Paul? Had he given, was, did you have the demo from Paul? Did you know what you wanted to play or how much of it was freestyling from Robert? Can you remember? I hate to tell you that. I can't really remember. I think it was mostly, free. they might have spoke on the phone about it. I think there was, because he did a couple of things, didn't he? He did, um, there was the singing part, but I think there was some instrumentation as well. Yeah, there's trump trumpet as well, yeah. I think there was a mini guide for the kind of possible notes for the trumpet, but not really. I think it was just do your thing on it. Do a bit of wieting. Wiet it. (laughs) Wietize this section of the song. He knew what bit. It was like, is this specific bit? So he had to do something. And uh, yeah, I'm sure he'd had a copy of it and would really thought it out and knew what he was going to do. The thing that's really fascinating to me about this as well is that that trumpet playing, it's unmistakably Robert. Yeah, it's, a t- yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know how but that could be a thing. It's a trumpet, it's a trumpet, it's a trumpet, right? It's, but-, but that music's funny like that. I worked with David Gilmore a little bit through Phil as well, and he goes back a long way with Robert too. I remember the first time I ever met him, and he was just sat on a sofa with a with a Fender Strat, 
and they were chatting like and he's tuning the guitar room and he just played like one note and I was bending down or whatever behind the desk doing some cabling but it's so unmistakably him I know he's here and sat there because I've seen him but just that I reckon if I hadn't I would have known exactly who that was just from like a single there's some tone that some some musicians have when they play, when they play an instrument yeah you can tell it's him on the trumpet it's the tremulousness or something in the note identifies it as him no, I can't get my head around that it's really amazing one thing I have to ask you about so you mentioned about yeah, a frustrated rock star wanting to be a rock star at one point and then diverting into the, the leads and the engineering and all that stuff but then not wanting to do that so much because of the feeling like a computer programmer I guess being behind a screen yeah yeah well, so what's been since then because we I had to ask you about the music club as well so we have to talk about Jamie's music club but you're still oh. you're still involved in the industry right no no, no I'm a music oh, teacher so okay music teacher I, I maybe how long ago two three years ago I did mix some bits for someone I mixed uh, a Shirley Collins album she had, had like do you know her she's a folk singer no I don't okay I'll dig her out yeah folk singer who who hadn't recorded for years and years and hadn't had recorded a new album so I mixed that for them at home I mean I did a lot of it at home and then took it into gallery studio to do the final mixes and I did something else for someone a similar thing at home but no I mostly teach I teach I teach guitar now I teach guitar and ukulele in person or over zoom or a bit of both uh, never on zoom again ever please uh, <laughs> I mean it was a lifesaver doing it on Zoom during lockdown. The fact that I could keep doing work was was fantastic and great, but it's not great doing guitar lessons on uh, online. Um, apart from the time delay thing, there wasn't enough work as well to justify less and less work. You know, studios just closing all the time. It wasn't just being sat in front of a computer, but that I, that would be the main. Like I miss it a lot. I miss being in studios with musicians and the vibe and the, the smell of studio of studio equipment and just the feeling you know in your you're creating things and it's exciting but I, I really don't miss sit, sitting there in front of a computer the thought of that again I mean I still you know we all have to do it sometimes but it's, it's like you're chained there there was a flow about stuff when you had See, I'm going to sound like an old kid now. There was a flow about the, the working day when you used to work with tape and the pauses in between, just, just the simple things like when you have to wait for the tape machine to rewind and talking. And, and there was a sense of recording. The thing you were recording was the thing. We are making the album now. This is it. We're hearing it and it's developing and growing. And there's a sense on digital that you're not really, or you lose touch of it a bit. Like we've got lots of takes there, but the actual thing we haven't heard yet because we're going to piece that together, right? And you used to do that a lot as still as well with tape, but not quite as much. For me, it wasn't a sound thing, tape with digital. Kind of don't care, really. Just the lived experience of using it is really different, I think. And I just, yeah, getting too old to work that many late nights, really, as well. So I started, I started teaching guitar and it just grew and grew. Actually, I'm really enjoying it, so... I'm still doing music. I couldn't not do music, really. And obviously, you're still in touch with Charles. You're still mates with Charles. Um, yeah, I haven't seen him for ages. He never calls enough. Um, <laughs> but he's really—he's still—he's still in the machine. He's still, isn't he? he's he's still, still in, in the there, bar. Four hours bar. a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've all done that. We all lived in studios, but virtually, when I first started to work at that place, the gallery with Charles, I virtually lived in the studio for three years. The rooms upstairs, where he slept under the snooker table or whatever can become all-consuming right the, oh, that, that kind of studio model in that way yeah yeah and quite a lot of the time we were working seven days a week especially if a band's come over from spain or south america to work the studio's costing them and there's like they're a bit bored at home 
quite often their characters who just want to live in the studio, you know, obsessed with music and their songs. So, yeah, you end up doing like seven days a week. And quite often it's like two in the morning. I'm like, am I going to go home? I've got to be back at nine. That's just, I'll just keep here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly you've been in the studio for, you know, two three, weeks. Three God, years. I haven't left. I haven't left this room for two weeks. I need to... <laughs> to eat something and get out. Anyway, you get to a certain age where it's just that just becomes harder to recover from doing albums. The other thing, I guess, is that excess. So, you know, the, obviously the world of rock and roll is every, everybody loves a drink. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, if that's the only yeah. excess, then probably you're lucky. But I mean, Paul's obviously famously quit the booze and stuff. But yeah. I would, I would, I would yeah. guess during those times, it became pretty hard on a hangover to do some of this stuff. Yeah, but he's he's got an incredible constitution. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he did it, especially touring. It must have been even more hardcore when they were touring than when they were in the studio. So 22 Dreams, that was coming to an end, his drinking. I think it was it was coming to a head. I don't know if he quit during that or maybe it was just after that. Yeah, big difference, a big difference. But it was still Paul. I mean, that used to amaze me how... It, how and you could see the others falling by the wayside during the day. You know, they, they would be on the couch sleeping a bit. Paul still had kind of the same energy and the drive at the end of the day and annoyingly would still kind of pick up on things that you think, You're, you, how can you be picking up on that little detail? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, <laughs> on, hour, we're on hour 18 and you've been drinking all day, yeah. Yeah, and he's, and, and he's still really on it and still wanting to get that kind of pushing against the edge of something to try and capture something. Amazing, yeah, but big difference when he stopped, like going, end of 22 Dreams was, it was, unto- it was, I'm trying not to say the wrong thing. There there were chaotic points during the end of that, yeah, that had kind of gone. But I think you can hear it in his music and drive that it's it's given him another kick, hasn't it, somehow? Even just from a productivity point of view, the amount of albums we're getting. Relentless, yeah, Yeah. relentless. What is it? I mean, having spent time with him and then being in that world and, and seeing that up close, what, what is it that's pushing him forward, do you think? What, what is it that's driving that? I guess in some way, he obviously loves it, loves doing it, and he's incredibly good at it. It's, it's just it's part of him, isn't it? He's kind of live, living, living this musical thing all the time. He must have, his brain is obviously whirring in a musical <laughs> dance thing all the time. So he's obviously got ideas. I mean, everyone must go through periods where they haven't got as many ideas. But even if he was, even if he didn't have ideas, I think the thing that's pushing the idea is still there. Like the need for it, you must have a need for it. Surely, I think if he was a plumber, it'd be like an amazing plumber and have to be obsessed with plumbing and have to keep doing whatever it is. There's that thing is there that's pushing it. Maybe that's independent of, of music, and it just happens that it's music. He's that that's the world he lives in. I mean, he's talked about it. Like, I've heard him in interviews and, and um, stuff talking about like there's really only three things in his life of any interest whatsoever. His family, music and clothes. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I can think of some others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He always looks amazing. He always looks... The only time I've... Yeah. The, the only time I've seen him not look amazing was the same time that I saw him laying on the couch and not sat on this, you know, bit, a little bit hungover, a little bit, but every other time he just, he's always the coolest person in the room <laughs> by a long, long way. Yeah. 
Now, Jamie, I'd love chatting with you. It's great hearing your memories and your stories. It's really I had, nice to meet you, Dan. Yeah. Oh, you too, man. I have two final questions for you before yeah. we go, okay? You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam. Above the, the clouds. <laughs> I don't even finish the question. Look, <laughs> it can be the jam, the style council or solo. <laughs> yeah, no, above the clouds. I think I just absolutely love that song. There's a version of him. But it is above the clouds, isn't it? I'm just having a brain fade now because I'm on camera. There's a version of him doing it on a train carriage. He's being interviewed. I've seen it on YouTube. You must have seen it if you're a big fan. He's dr- he's definitely drunk. He's definitely drunk. He's got a tinny. He's drinking through a tinny and the train's going. He does this version of it and it's fucking brilliant. It's like his voice just sounds so great on it. I think, yeah, Above the Clouds is my, yeah, that's my take. That's that's the one song I'd go for. Great. And I actually, on the most recent tour that I was on, um, although I went to, he, he played that live. And it, right. it's like, I was from Rowan. It's just like, fuck, oh, my God, this yeah, is such a yeah. great song. What a yeah. tune. Yeah, and his voice is changing, isn't it, his voice? But it just sounds more soulful and more deep and warm and kind of wide. I don't know. It's it's changing. It's not... You never, I never heard him think, oh, he can't get to that bit or he can't. It's still, it just sounds brilliant. Absolutely. Hey, look, final question. So purpose of this podcast yeah. is to meet lovely people like yourself, hear your memories, your stories of working with Paul and digging into those memories. But it's for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It was my one big regret having given up my radio career over 10 years ago now. <laughs> never got to interview Weller. I, funny enough, I have met him. At a Sainsbury's in Cobham. So similar to your vegetable oh, really? aisle story. Sainsbury's in Cobham, yeah. Um, Sainsbury's is... If you want to bump into Paul Weller, go to Sainsbury's. <laughs> Absolutely. But look, if it happens, if I get the interview with Paul, what should I ask him? Oh, that's really... That's a really hard question. What should you ask him? Uh, he's good on Iggy Pop. Ask him about Iggy Pop. Oh, really? What, what big fan? I think he's a big fan of Iggy Pop. Okay. And, and parts of Iggy Pop's anatomy. Ask it, ask it <laughs> I feel like there's a story here, but you're not going to tell me anyway. No, I'm not telling you anything. No. So Iggy Pop, uh, parts of his anatomy. Okay, well, good. Uh, Jamie, yeah. thank you so much for joining me, man. Um, we shall put all the details about your connections with Mr. Weller in the show notes and also about Jamie's music club as well. Um, but look, you're man, a star. I- Very nice to meet you, Dan. Really appreciate your time, pal. No problem. Anytime. My thanks once again to Jamie Johnson, another brilliant guest here on Desperately Seeking Paul. Check out more details in the show notes for this podcast. I put all the details about the songs and the albums that he's worked on on there as well. There's even a special Spotify playlist for you too. Just go to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Whilst you're there, don't forget you can show your support for the podcast by buying us a virtual coffee. Hello to Jen. Thank you so much to you for yours. Hi to Tom Walker. So listening to this brilliant podcast, Rekindle My my love of Mr. Weller's music. Cheers, Dan. Hey, thank you, Tom. Much appreciated. Hello to Stephen Cartwright. Hello, sir. Hi to Stu Burns. Hello to Jane the Jam Tart with a Heart. Hi to Nick Keane. Hello, Roger Clark. Hi also to Barry at Night Design, who says recently started to commute more than normal. What a find this was. Keep up the good work, Dan. Thank you, Barry. Welcome on board. And thanks to you for your generosity, Phil Baker. Much appreciated, my friend. If you want to get involved, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Just head to my store there as well. And don't forget right now, details on the website about our very special live event on Saturday, April the 15th, the Water Rats in London. We'd love to see you there. Tickets on sale for a double podcast recording session. Peter Anderson talks photography, the jam, the style council, and more. Plus, Paul Smiler Anderson talks about his friendship with Weller, his love of the jam, and all things mod. Saturday 15th of April, the Water Rats in London. 
We'll see you there. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.